We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we continue um, this short New Year's series that I've entitled Living the Dream. What does it mean for us to be living God's own dream for His world as He works it out in the life, the death, the resurrection, and reign of Jesus Christ. For we pray every week, thy kingdom come, in the confidence that in fact, in the birth of Jesus Christ, it has come. And it continues to come. We celebrated that with the New Year's, um, December 31st, him in Revelation in which we beheld the glories of the risen King in the visions of John for the consummated kingdom. And then we asked, what does it mean that we are a people of such a King of glory? And today we consider the question, what does it mean to be a people of such a kingdom? So read with me 1 Corinthians Paul is writing to a group of believers in the city of Corinth that were having a hard time understanding what does it mean to bear the name of Christ, their king, in a world and in a time that did not acknowledge his reign. In short, a time much like our own. Paul writes this is one of four letters in which he helps them sort this question, these questions out. So read with me. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 18, reading through the end of the chapter. Flowing from what he said before, he continues, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than, man, than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to, the wor to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, 
you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is God's good word to us, his people, in this strange day and age in which we live, that we may know up from down and right from left. So let us go to him in prayer. Father, we marvel at the wonders and the mystery of the gift of this day. A day sanctified and set apart by you from the beginning. Used by your spirit to gather your people in your presence that we may behold your glory, we may hear your glory that we may taste and see your glory, we may participate in it. It is such a strange experience, which, frankly, we confess we have become all too accustomed to. And so now, by your Spirit, we pray uh, that you would awaken us to the wonder of it all, We pray that you would feed us upon this, your word, and protect us from error and cause us to increase in wonder and love and in joy as we consider the implications for us of your son's reign today. We pray it in his name. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you find yourself asking, am I the crazy one here? Um, It happens to me on a pretty regular basis. I have a friend by the name of Jeff, who's also a minister, and I first met him in Japan. We were roommates in Japan, fellow missionary. I had been there before him, and then he arrived, and um, we became roommates. The first day after he arrived, I was at the breakfast table in the house that we were renting, and he came down. He threw his return ticket on the table, and he said, tear it up. I said, why do you want me to tear it up? He said, because if you don't tear it up, I'm getting out of this crazy place. Okay. So I asked him, I invited him, I had to go and get a haircut, and I asked him to go along. And so he accompanied me to get a haircut. Now keep in mind that he is just less than 24 hours in Tokyo, having arrived directly from Jackson, Mississippi. Just the mention of Jackson explains it all. We can pray. And so he accompanied me to get a haircut. And it's a typical um, barber salon type place. You know, there's seats and there are mirrors and scissors and trimmers and all kinds of things. You know, people coming and going, nice haircuts, bad haircuts, etc., etc., including TVs for the clientele. And in this case, because of the time of year, they were showing Japanese baseball, which, just as a sideline, 
um, is actually more Japanese now than it is American because in typical Japanese fashion, uh, they have taken it and they have perfected the art of baseball. It is an art form in Japan. That's free. You don't have to pay for it. So we're watching baseball, and it's the same bases, it's the same bats, you know, it's the same, you know, you got two teams, and one guy's throwing this little white thing, and another guy's trying to hit it, and everybody chases after it, et cetera, et cetera, and the same baseball diamond, et cetera. So anyway, he's watching while I'm getting my hair cut. And like all sports broadcasts that you and I watch in the States, there were all kinds of advertisements and words and signs, some in the stadium, but some flashing across the screen. The announcers were going a mile a minute in Japanese. The thing is, all the signs were in Asian characters. They were in a mix of Japanese and Chinese characters, which, for those of you who do not know, make zero sense to those of us from the U.S., but at least he thought it was baseball. He thought, I may not be able to read or understand anything, but after all, baseball is baseball. A little taste of home. And who is beginning to feel, maybe I can do this thing. And so, getting my hair cut, Barbara and I are talking, pitch, strike, pitch, strike, pitch. Hit, run, and then panic. My friend Jeff jumps up and he screams in shock. He says, what in the world? They do everything backwards in this country. Oh, Jeff, buddy, calm down. What do you mean? He goes, that guy just hit a, a grand slam over the wall, and he took off running to third base. What in the world is wrong with these people? And so my barber, who is the shop owner, said, what's going on? And so I explained the commotion to him. And the shop owner smiled, and other customers started chuckling quietly as he turned around and he picked up the remote and he pushed the reverse picture button. And the picture turned around because it had been set up so that the customers can watch the game in the mirror <laughs> and not directly. It looked like baseball, and it sounded like baseball, but it didn't play out like baseball. And he was horribly confused and horribly disoriented, and then, to top it off, horribly embarrassed. I feel so dumb. That's what it feels like to live in Tokyo when you're from Jackson, Mississippi. But you don't have to travel halfway around the world to have that experience. Just after we graduated from seminary, I was working at the seminary, and somebody came to me and said, hey, there's this little church up in the cornfields, needs a preacher. And I said, so you're saying they just need a warm body who loves Jesus and wants them to love Jesus. And they said, yes, that's right. So I went. 
We got in the car, and we drove. It was about an hour and a half away. And um, apparently they just needed a warm body, and so we started driving. And so we drove north from St. Louis through Alton, Illinois. Some of you are familiar with the area. And you keep driving north through Godfrey and then Brighton. And by the way, there's, incidentally, there's a great antique store in Brighton. And then Medora and then Chesterfield. These are all sprawling megapolises. And Hedick. And after Hedick, this is how the instructions went. After Hedick, you'll pass about four cornfields. And after the fourth cornfield, you're going to turn right. And you're going to drive past five cornfields. And you're going to cross a creek, and you're going to go up a hill, and you're going to cross past two more cornfields, and you're going to turn left. Now, don't stop at the church that you're going to see on the right, because that's the church that split off from us. Keep going, and past the next one, you're going to turn right, and then behind that cornfield, you're going to find another church, and that's us. And by the way, if you get to Palmyra, it means you've missed the first turn. Now, you have to keep in mind, this is before we had cell phones. But in any case, even if we did, there would have been no coverage there. But we made it. And for those of you who know some of my other travel stories, that you find that amazing. And we had a sweet time. We doubled the size of the congregation, Mako and I. Um, and we enjoyed good Illinois community, farm community church dinner. That was in July, and it was wonderful, and it was fine. It was November when they called and said, can you come again? Sure, we've been there before. Now, some of you who are familiar with Illinois are already thinking to yourself, oh, Dan, you have no idea. The land is completely different. There are no more cornfields. You can't count them. And so is that a cornfield? I don't know if that was a cornfield. Is that a soybean field? I don't know if that was a soybean field. And so we drive through Godfrey and we drive past Brighton and we drive past Hedick and we have no idea where we are. Fortunately, however, there was this tiny little handmade, hand-painted, now-fading sign that said, Concord Church, this way. So, by the powerful working of the Spirit, we made it. Same country, same roads, completely different world. Profoundly disorienting. All the signs were different. All the landmarks had been moved. Same roads, same land, completely different experience. These two experiences are not unlike what it does, or at least ought to feel like, as we seek to live in this world as citizens of Christ's kingdom. You see, because the fact of the resurrection changes the significance of everything that you see around you. And so that it doesn't mean the same thing that it means to 
people who are around us. In the two cases just described, however, the longer you live in a place, the longer you live in Tokyo, the longer you live in Illinois, the more you travel a road, the more comfortable and accustomed you become to the signs and the way they change. Whereas the longer we live in this world as citizens of Christ's kingdom, we ought to find ourselves be feeling increasingly uncomfortable increasingly disoriented, increasingly unaccustomed in the way that we encounter and navigate by the values of the age and the signs of the times in which we live. Which is precisely what's happening in Corinth. You see, the troubles that were happening in Corinth and the rest of the letter gets into some of those troubles in detail, but the troubles that were happening in Corinth were rooted in the fact that they had been trying to live as people of Christ's kingdom according to the elementary principles, as Paul describes it later, and values and customs of the world around them. And it won't happen. It can't happen. It will exhaust you. It will stretch you and finally will fragment you. This was a congregation in Corinth of a fragmented and fragmenting people because they were seeking to live as people of Christ's kingdom. They were seeking to bear the name of Christ according to the elementary principles and wisdom of the world. And so notice... Paul starts out and he starts to explain. He says, for the word of the cross that he has been proclaiming, that he is not ashamed to proclaim, he tells us in Romans chapter 1, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then throughout this passage, he's going to Um, He's going to contrast folly and wisdom, power and weakness. Folly and wisdom, power and weakness. He introduces the two there. But look at that passage. It's fascinating. The premise is found there that folly and wisdom, power and impotence, the values values of the kingdom are almost, almost exactly the opposite of what we find in the world so consistently that you could almost make a rule that says whatever the world says, do the opposite. The world says flex your muscles. The kingdom says stand down. There are still things that are called wisdom and foolishness and power and weakness in the world, but they are not... Exact, and, and they are, but they are almost exactly the opposite of what we call wisdom and foolishness, power and weakness in the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom reorganizes it all. Notice what he says there in 18. Our expectation when we read this according to the categories that we've been given by the world... <clears throat> 
Our expectation is that the, that the sentence will go something like this. The word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. Because that's how our world trains us to expect it. But Paul here is contrasting the word of the the foolishness with power. Later, he's going to talk about it as wisdom. But here, he talks about it as the power of God. He contrasts the word of the cross with as foolishness with the power of God. Why is that? <clears throat> Excuse me. Because he wants the Corinthians to know, as he will in a few verses show, that the word of the cross is not merely a system of philosophy. The gospel is not merely a set of propositions that we give, that we give consent to. The word of the gospel the word of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as summed up in the power of the cross is power. It is, it is the stuff by which the world was created. It is the stuff by which the world is sustained. It is the stuff by which we find ourselves gathered in this room on this day after yet another week. It is not merely another philosophical system. It is not merely one more religious system. It is not merely that this happens to be part of our cultural heritage. It's not merely that we were born in the right place at the right time and that we so happen to believe it. Rather, it is the power of the triune God, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, and no matter when you lived. As you know, such a statement is supremely offensive in our world. Oh, so you're saying you know the truth for all people in all places in all times? Um, yes. Yes, that is what I'm saying. That by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the triune, transcendent God of all creation has revealed not only his power, but the power of his love. And that is his glory. For all people in all places at all times. Brothers and sisters, you have to understand that our world hears that as oppressive. But we have to understand that is good news. Because it brings life. Verse 20. Excuse me, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God, because this is his glory, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach 
to save those who believe, to save those who hear it with, with faith. Whoa, Jesus rose from the dead. That changes everything. That's what faith sounds like when it's exercised. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What is going on there? There's two ways that some of your Bibles may have translated. Most modern translations will, will read something like what the ESV has there, the folly of what we preach. But some of the older translations will have something like the folly of preaching. And um, that's fine. There is a... a um, there is a small but diminishing debate about whether or not that's a legitimate um, translation. I believe the ESV has it right, that the focus here is on the content of, the, of what is preached. But there's an element of truth in thinking, what? The, the, the act of preaching is what reveals the power of God? <laughs> There's a whole seminar in that question. But think about this for just a moment. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke, and it happened. The power of God's word by which he creates something out of nothing continues in the proclamation of his word. May you have ears to hear, let him hear. But whether or not that is there, it is secondary in any case to the content and what is the content of what is preached. Well, Paul has just talked about it. It is the word of the cross. It is the word of the glory of God in Jesus. Remember Jesus, the crucified Messiah, the failed Messiah, the shamed Messiah. That infamous, notorious charlatan who said, I am the Son of God, come to take away the sins of the world. Now crucified, Messiah. Why in the world, Paul, would you go around preaching such a thing? Well, because the word of the cross is the power of God. It's a power that is so amazing that it brings to nothing the vaunted wisdom of the world. And so, in fact, it's what he said he would do from the beginning. Verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He had told us back in Isaiah, this is how I'm going to do this thing. And lo and behold, boom, he did it. Even if it's not what we might have expected. And so Paul goes on. So where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Paul is using three words there that would have had specific meaning in the day. The wise would have referred to the great, eloquent, expert philosophers of, Greek, of the Greek culture. Wouldn't have just been 
been a, well, he has pretty good street sense. This would have been, these would have been world, these would have been uh, world famous or at least city famous. These are the ones that are accomplished in being able to present with authority and clarity and certainty the great system of philosophy. These are the ones who say, come to me, I know how life works. And so we go. We do it today, don't we? We pay big bucks for guys with, with letters behind their names who have somehow positioned themselves as experts in their field. We do it today. Let's not fool ourselves. That's what Paul has in mind here when he says, so where is the wise one? Where is the scribe by which he's reaching into, into the um, tradition of his Jewish audience. The scribe is the one who knows all of the inner workings and of, of the Bible and all of the traditions of the rabbis and how they all work together. Oh, we better ask the scribes because they know. Where is he? The philosopher or the debater of this age would be akin to someone, um, the one who is able to um, take any message you have, whatever message you have, polish it up, shrink wrap it, and present it in a way that's convincing and attractive. Where are they? Where are all these people that our world has come to rely on? In the light of the cross, they have shrunk back because they have said, I got nothing. What do we say now? Drop the mic. Ooh, pretty impressive. Now you know you can trust me because I know a cool word. The wise one, the scribe, the debater of the age, they have all seen this. They could not have imagined it. They would never have imagined it because according to the structures of their thought, it would have been absolutely absurdly foolish. Nobody in their right mind would imagine that the way to take over the world is to present a crucified Messiah. Nobody in the, in the history of the world, no wise man, no scribe, no debater of this age would have thought to themselves, Oh, I know the greatest way to manifest the glory of God is to come in the form of a servant, washing feet, being abandoned, being beaten, and being crucified. Whoa! And so they step back. They say, I got nothing. That's crazy talk. <laughs> For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through their wisdom, it pleased God through what they esteemed to be foolishness to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs. Prove to me this is God. Show me. If God does this, then I'll believe it. The Greeks seek wisdom. Explain that all to me. If you can explain it all to me beyond a shadow of a doubt, then I'll believe you. 
because it just doesn't make sense. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles because it goes right to the core of the issue. Whose glory are you living for? Because if you're living for your own glory, the cross makes no sense. But if you want to taste and see the beauty of God's glory, then when we stare at the cross, we begin to understand it. We begin to see it. We begin to marvel at it. So to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, we begin to see in Christ the power of God. And then we begin to see the wisdom of God and the beauty of God and the goodness of God and the joy of God and the delight of God. For when we see Christ as God in the flesh, beholding his glory as of the only begotten of the Father upon the cross, now risen from the dead, we were like, oh, that's what the prophets were talking about. That's why Isaiah said that. That's why Moses said that, which is precisely what, Paul's, what was Paul's experience. Because, you see, Paul knew. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a scribe of the scribes, if you will. Paul knew everything there was to know about Scripture until he met the risen Jesus. And he said, I got nothing. Because of Jesus is living after I saw him crucified. Then I don't think I know anything about the scripture. And Paul spent the next three years going back and recalibrating everything that he thought he understood about the scripture. That's Paul's case as a Jew. But the fact of the matter is, testimonies abound of, the, of Gentiles doing the same thing. Wait a minute. If Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything about what I think is wise and foolish, what I think is up and down, what I think is good and bad, what I think is evil. It changes everything about who is my enemy and who is my friend. If Jesus rose from the dead, it realigns everything. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so he says, you want proof of it? Now you guys are going to recognize my next move because I do it at least once a month for 15 years. Paul says, look at yourselves. And so by way of application, look around you. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to these standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
Some commentators believe that Paul is channeling Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 9, which he will quote just a few verses later. It's not that these are the only categories, but these are the categories that Paul uses partly because of the immediate context, but also because these are the categories that make sense for his people to make the point. I didn't call you because you were wise. So often we hear testimonies that in which people say, well, I, I considered all of the claims of God and I decided that he's pretty wise. Well, who's the wise one there? We're not here, brothers and sisters, because we were wise according to the world's standards. We're not here, brothers and sisters, because we were powerful by the world's standards. He didn't say, I need some powerful people. How many of you have heard that? Oh, well, so-and-so became a Christian because, you know, God really could use them. They're very powerful. Which is, think about it, which is, isn't that our fascination with celebrities who come to Christ? Whew, glad God got him. Really needs him. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Not many of us were powerful by the world's standards. Not many of us were of noble birth. We're the proof of the pudding. You see. Because we were foolish by the world's standards. We were weak by the world's standards. We were outcasts by the world's standards. And although we do not celebrate it today, we will celebrate it next week. It is such a people that it is the glory of the triune God to delight in. Who'd have thunk of that? I, I sometimes can hardly stand to be with myself. that the triune God of abounding glory and holiness would actually delight to welcome me to his table and then to make it worse, he multiplies it because he wants you next to me at the table. Ick! But that is the delight of the Father. That is the kingdom that he builds. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. How is it that you and I get to eat at the king's table? Like Mephibosheth. God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. He chose what is weak according to the world's values to shame the strong as the world esteems it. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So how are you feeling I find myself frequently having bought 
deeply into the values of our culture about wisdom and power and nobility. Thinking to myself, there is no way that I belong in the kingdom. And the word of the gospel comes and says, exactly my point. Because your glory is not why you're in the kingdom. You're in the kingdom because of my glory. That's who I am. It is my delight to call you and welcome you through Jesus Christ into my kingdom. Because that's how I roll. Not according to the world. Almost invariably, when I am feeling these things, this exhaustion, the sense of fragmentation, the sense of disorientation, almost invariably when I am feeling them in whatever extent, in whatever areas of life, it is because I am seeking to live as a citizen of the kingdom according to the values of the world. And I promise you, it will rip you apart. It will exhaust you. And it will stretch you thin because they're pulling in opposite directions. I'm trying to secure and cultivate for myself the blessings of the kingdom by the strategies, the wisdom, and the strength of the world. It can't happen. What about marriages and families? You find yourself perhaps trying to live the kingdom dream by the principles and values and practices of the world? Is that the tension that you might be feeling in your marriage? Is it, is it possible that by the values and the wisdom of the world, you've come to disdain the one that the Lord has given to you? And you're trying to live according to that assessment. But in the power of the cross, in the light of the cross, rather do you realize that the king has bestowed upon you a rich gift of his amazing grace? Are you struggling to live at peace with all men? You find yourself saying, oh, pastor, you just don't understand. Well, what I understand is values of the kingdom and how seeking to live as citizens of the kingdom by the values of the world will rip us apart. There is this show. Here it comes. There is this show that I enjoy watching, and there's a new season out, so I'm very excited about it, called Stranger Things. Caveat, just because I say it from the pulpit does not mean I'm endorsing it. Exactly. And in Stranger Things, there are, there's this parallel world, <clears throat> and it's called the Upside Down. It's fascinating. And I think I love Stranger Things simply because this world is called the Upside Down. Life in this world, as a people of the kingdom, is something like living or seeking to navigate the upside down. The upside down is this parallel universe that is dark where the world is light and light where the world is dark. 
And there's this sensation of it's the exact inverse of the same terrain. And so when you go into the upside down from the right side up, if you will, uh, you feel really disoriented and everything has to be reversed in your own mind. And that's what it feels like when we seek to navigate our lives in this world as people of the kingdom. It's as though we're from the right side up and we've been thrust into the upside down. And this is such a consistent pattern of that, that exists, this, this pattern in the world which seeks to exalt self over God and others. This turning God's right side up world upside down that it plays out through every sphere of our life. It's so consistent that you should think very carefully before adopting what the spirit of the age is whispering to you. Does the spirit of the age whisper to you, consume, consume, you have to get a new phone or a new car? Then stop, because almost invariably, the spirit of the kingdom is saying, yeah, no, you don't need a new phone. You need contentment. Is the spirit of the age whispering to you, this is how I feel, this is how I'm made, I just have to do it. Then stop. Because the spirit of the age suggests that by reigning in and saying no to your desires and appetite, you actually may be living in the way that you're designed. Is the spirit of the age whispering panic and fear, saying, here they come, quick, lock the doors, close the windows, don't let them in. Try to count to ten. Maybe the spirit of the kingdom is suggesting, open the doors and invite them in. Invite them to dinner. Because that's how our kingdom runs his kingdom. That's how our king runs his kingdom. Perhaps the spirit of the age is saying, you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. Store up, store up, store up. What about give it away? Because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Give it away. Get rid of it. I have a good friend that has far less than I do in terms of material goods, but gives away far more, both in real terms and in percentages. Gives away far more in ways that really make me nervous. Well, I mean, you wouldn't want to be unwise, would you? You don't want to get rid of all of that because you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You might need it. And he has said, not to me in this so many words, but to a friend, I have it. Why not give it away? Because I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Oh, um, uh, right. Because you see the values, the wisdom of this world at almost every point is exactly the opposite of the values of the kingdom and of the king.
we seek to live faithfully as citizens of the kingdom in this world, we will feel increasingly uncomfortable and disoriented and out of place. But that's the call. And that's the joy. For the joy is set before us. We participate with Jesus in this kingdom life. And leave the world scratching its head and leave the king glorified. Because that's what it means to be children of the king and citizens of his kingdom. Let's go to him in prayer.